0: Russian and Chinese jets deliver a really pointed send-off on last day of Joe Biden's Asia trip. Russian and Chinese bombers flew joint patrols near Japanese and South Korea air defense zones on Tuesday in a pointed farewell to U.S. President Joe Biden as he concluded a trip to Asia that rankled Beijing. What message was being sent by these patrols? Well, for Insight, We turn to our first guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, sir, welcome back.
1: Glad to be here.
0: So the patrols came hours after Biden angered China by saying he would be willing to respond militarily to defend Taiwan if it came under Chinese attack. And as he discussed responses to Russia's invasion of Ukraine with leaders of the Quad, which... Uh, groups the United States with uh, Asia, India, and Japan. Uh, Dr. Hammond, this sounds a lot like the playground game, I dare you to knock this stick off my shoulder. And China just knocked the stick off of Joe Biden's shoulder. (laughs) That's what this looks like to me
1: well i think that uh, the the biden trip to to east asia was was not not exactly a roaring success uh you know for american ambitions in that area the us is trying to shore up its position trying to line up its uh you know its its vassal states there to to back it in its ongoing and intensifying efforts to demonize China and confront China and contain China. But it didn't really work out all that well for Biden. Of course, he he flubbed his own lines by, by misspeaking about, the you know, the American official position on China, uh, even though he had to backpedal and say, well, I didn't, you know, I, I said one thing, but I, well, this is what I really, you know, he's just sounding very, very confused about this stuff. But overall, the, the they couldn't get the agreement that they wanted on, uh, on uh, you know, a sort of new defense pact. Uh, uh, India was, uh, you know, strong in sort of standing against that. They couldn't get uh, 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 a, an, a even an agreement on an economic cooperation organization because they had to exclude Taiwan from that, uh, because legally they can't do that with Taiwan. So they, they talked about this, you know, first island chain and all that, but they couldn't even get these uh, the other participants in these talks to agree to that. Now, of course, that's not how this, this trip gets spun in the American media you know, Biden's out there standing tough and everything. But really, for any practical outcome, this wasn't very effective. So these gestures by the the Chinese and the Russians in sending these uh, these uh, joint missions, these these training flights, basically um, into airspace, which you know the South Koreans claim they have this air defense zone. Lots of countries have these; they have no real legal standing. Nobody really recognizes them in international law. But they were sending a message. The Russians and the Chinese clearly were sending a message, and I think it's exactly as you say. It's like Oh, yeah? Watch this,
2: you know? Another interesting article, China to provide South Pacific countries, quote, what Australia and the U.S. failed to offer. So as, you know, the U.S., once, as you were saying, you know, they're going around and they're trying to get places to put missiles and they're trying to get together some kind of an anti-China coalition and in an area of the world that China economically absolutely dominates. Now China has gone on a mission to countries that they already, you know, to many small islands, uh, Samoa, Fiji, Tonga of Solomon Islands, on and on, and they're, they, they're very liquid. They're able to offer a lot of tangible things. They're offer, able to offer finances and, and to help rebuild them, and it certainly sounds as though they're having considerably more success. Your thoughts?
1: Well, I think, you know, the situation, obviously the Solomon Islands have, have been kind of the headline here, but, uh, you know, Foreign Minister Wang Yi of China is uh, embarking on a, a, a journey around the, uh, the Southwest Pacific, going all the way to, uh, to uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, and, and visiting a number of countries. Uh, all of these countries are places that uh, for a long, long time, the United States and the other white settler post-colony government there in, uh, in Australia have considered to be sort of their turf, right? Uh, the, 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 the white hegemons, uh, you know, uh, benefiting in, in their own eyes. Uh, these local populations. But uh, they've been much more interested in military bases and in extractive operations uh, economically and in you know, security as a as a sort of buzzword, than they have in actually helping these countries develop their own economies to serve the interests of their own people. China's coming in on on, you know, this the, the model that they have. Uh, we see this in the Belt and Road and many other parts of the world, uh, of trying to find ways that are mutually beneficial. China's not going in there as a as a philanthropy. They're not going in there as some sort of you know benefactor but they're looking for for relationships that can be mutually beneficial. And of course, those countries are are eager to have help that isn't tied to political criteria, that isn't tied to austerity measures and like that. So, I think that they the US and Australia find this unsettling uh and and they're, you know, they're trying to again uh, promote these ideas of demonizing China. China must be doing something nefarious. They couldn't possibly be doing something that was actually mutually beneficial? Because <laughs> we certainly wouldn't do that. So why would we think someone else would?
0: And listening to the way Garland framed the question, talking about the U.S. trying to find places to place missiles, and I think he's absolutely right, particularly when you look at the number of foreign bases that the United I think it's around 600, that the United States has around the world. the The, the nauseating hypocrisy of... Vietnam asking, I believe, China to help it dredge a port. Cambodia. Cambodia, thank you. To help it dredge a port. And United States says, oh, you can't do that because you're going to build a base. Now China wants to sign a defense or a, a, a pact with the Solomon Islands. Oh, you can't do that. We see that as a threat. And then Russia says to the Ukraine, you can't become part of NATO because you're going to put missiles there, pointed at me. You're threatening, like, "Oh, you can't do that." So the overarching hypocrisy of the American narrative is sickening. It is. It is pretty stunning.
1: Uh, it's it's uh, to, to call it a double standard is you know is is just putting it in the simplest possible way you know the you know these island nations out in the pacific these are not you know vast wealthy uh, societies these are countries that that scrabble along you know they have they have their own local economic needs and interests and they're doing their best to to improve the lives of their people but you know for
0: example tonga had and quickly some of them due to global warming may wind up being consumed by the oceans in which they reside go, go ahead
1: well exactly Exa- no exactly and of course that global warming is the outcome of of a long 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 period of industrial development primarily in in you know europe and north america that has contributed to the to the situation we find ourselves in now but even even something like a natural disaster tonga had that uh, that earthquake and, and Eruption and, and all that. And the outside countries, you know, China was the first country there. China was the first country to provide direct assistance to people in Tonga and not just to, you know, sort of uh, flap its wings in a, in, a, in a tizzy about, you know, who, who was going to be uh, operating the security system or something like that. So the benefits that China can bring to this region, it's, it's not they're not asking for a lot. Uh, These are not countries that have huge populations and massive needs, but they have real needs. And yet the Americans and the Australians have been pretty pretty lax about addressing those issues and have been much more concerned with maintaining their their security profile and their their lines of defense and all that.
2: And let me add this. I think those islands are watching this Ukraine thing, too, and they're saying, well, wait a minute, if you put missiles on my island— and China, and any war starts, that means China is going to target my island, and we're going to turn into Ukraine. We get blown to bits. You're asking me to sacrifice the few people that I have on my little old island. We're loving life, soaking up the sun, eating fish and coconuts every day. If these missiles show up, we get Chinese crosshairs on them. So you're you're doing what basically what you're doing in Ukraine. And I think people are looking at Ukraine saying, no, thanks. I don't want a slice of that. Bye-bye.
0: fattening frogs for snakes is what it's called.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And it's, you know, this idea of proxy wars. We've heard a lot about this, that, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. have said we're not going to get involved. Europe has said we're not going to get involved directly in Ukraine. We'll give them all the weapons so they can draw this war out as long as possible. But we're not going to actually get in there and fight. We're not going to take Casualties. It's bad enough we have to take an economic hit. We're not going to take an actual military hit in this. Uh, but, you know, we're going to let Ukraine suffer as much as it has to to achieve our interests. And these countries, as you say, they've got to be looking at that. Even countries like Japan and South Korea have got to be looking at that and saying, at least some people saying, do we really want to be the sacrificial lambs? Do we want to be the the, the international sacrifice zone for American interests, for American profits, for American elites? That's not really even in their interest, even though their governing uh, uh, you know uh, elites in, in Japan and Korea, South Korea seem to have still maintained their their close relationship with the U.S. <laughs>
0: You're a professor of East Asian and and global history, and one of the things that that I've learned from talking to you over the time that we've had you is that you understand culture. And can you speak to the cultural approach that a Wang Yi takes representing China versus uh, the lack of cultural understanding that a Tony Blinken tries to employ, the bullying tactics uh, that 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 a that a Tony Blinken or that a U.S. delegation tries to employ as as uh, as they deal with uh, with countries such as the Solomon Islands, Fiji, Tonga, Papua New, New Guinea, and Samoa.
1: Well, I think that that Chinese Chinese foreign policy in general has been pretty consistent with. A lot of Chinese cultural practices, uh, not, me, not being confrontational, looking for the win-win. Uh, if you go all the way back in Chinese history and you look at, at things like Chinese business culture, it's based – on different premises it's not you know certainly people were trying to make a buck or a yen or whatever uh, you know and 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 trying to trying to a- advance their own interests in their economic activities, but the influences of of Confucianism and other aspects of Chinese culture put a priority on establishing long term profitable relationships for both sides in transactions. The idea wasn't to go in there you know I, I think it's it's not a coincidence that in our Western culture, when we talk about you know somebody having a really great outcome, we talk about how they really made a killing, right? And, and that reflects a certain mentality in, in how Americans and, and Westerners look at the world around them. The Chinese relationship or the Chinese interactions are based on this idea of long-term relationships. They take a longer perspective on things. So that's why when today the foreign minister of the People's Republic talks about, well, let's look at at creating relationships that are mutually beneficial. That's not something that he's making up off the top of his head. That's an expression of deeper structures within
0: Chinese political culture. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
1: My pleasure. Always glad to be
0: here. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Task reports recent developments indicate that Warsaw is seeking to mount a mission creep scheme into Ukraine, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said in a briefing yesterday. How significant is this report? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security. security analyst Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back.
3: Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour.
0: It cannot be ruled out that Warsaw is, of course, hatching plans for some sort of mission creep into the territory of the neighboring state. In any case, the fact speaks for themselves. In this instance, the reference to Russia's special military operation is nothing more than a pretext," Zakharova noted. Mark Schloboda, what's going on here, and is this a point of contention and concern?
3: Yeah, it is a point of concern. Uh, Poland, along with the Baltics, uh, for you know historical and cultural reasons, has long been the biggest, loudest anti. Russian, you know, uh, countries in the EU, uh, they're, they're very hawkish on Russia. And of course that has accelerated, you know, not just in the last eight years, but particularly in the last uh, few months since the Russian intervention in Ukraine, uh, to, to really high levels of, of bellicose, um, rhetoric, um, and, uh, you know, actual, um, arms as well, uh, although they're still largely taking a back seat onto the actual delivery uh, of weapons. But um, there's been a lot of talk, um, a lot of face-to-face talk between Zelensky uh, and the Polish president um, where they have discussed basically erasing their borders for each other's citizens as much as possible. And a part of that, of course, is uh, in reference to the number of Ukrainian uh, refugees or migrants um, that have crossed the border into Poland, sometimes on elsewhere into the EU. But of course, there's large numbers of them uh, in Poland. And the idea is that Ukraine uh, is right now in the process of passing a bill that will reciprocate is the idea. And this is designed to give Polish in Ukraine all sorts of rights, um, meaning including evidently voting, running for office, and the right for Polish to conduct police duties in Ukraine. Now, that is supposedly what is included in the bill it hasn't actually been passed in a final form yet but that's where the concern comes in because it has long been the assumption that where a lot of members of nato are very much getting involved directly in Ukraine because of the presence of Russian troops. Uh, Poland is not that concerned. Poland is one of those countries that is, is, uh, as I said, the hawkish, and they don't care. They want to get involved anyway. This is seen by many as a backdoor way to legalize the presence of Polish, either large numbers of, quote, volunteers, unquote, mercenaries sent Ukraine uh, to fight for the regime there, Uh, or uh, perhaps eventually even um, uh, Polish troops moving into West Ukraine to conduct policing duties, uh, perhaps if uh, at some later date um, Russian forces threaten Kiev uh, or something of the sort. That is a measure that uh, NATO may take. Uh, to uh have Poland uh move troops in to protect uh western Ukraine. Now, I think that is a possibility uh but it is such a threat of escalation uh, i.e. direct uh combat between Polish and Russian troops being a possible result of it uh that has many people wondering where where this escalation will end up.
2: I felt a while back when uh, President Putin mentioned that he would, you know, if the, the the Westerners got involved, that he would strike them, you know, with lightning kind of implying st- the uh, hypersonic missiles. I kind of felt that that was kind of aimed at Poland to some extent. But let me ask you this. And I'm sure you hear all this stuff. This is part of the conversation, certainly about, you know, Ukraine being in broken into pieces and that the far— um, Western part of Ukraine, Lviv, however the heck you pronounce it.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lviv in Ukraine, Lvov in Russian.
2: Okay, that at some point, that's kind of Banderistan anyway, at some point in the future that it may there may come to a point where the Russians may not really care if the if the Poles acquired that part, but it would, the timing would have to be correct. And anyway, I'm sure you've heard all that stuff. Your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, um, of course, um, historically, um, this part of Ukraine, West Ukraine, what is often historically referred to as Galicia, uh, it wasn't actually part of Ukraine, historically. It was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, then the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, for centuries. Um, uh, it was separate from the rest of Ukraine, which explains uh, a great deal about the modern social political differences between West Ukraine and East Ukraine. And there's a lot of talk that Poland could move in to occupy and absorb West Ukraine. I do not see that happening with the current state of relations. I don't think that Poland really has territorial ambitions there. But I do think that uh, you know, despite uh, you know all of the insane references uh, from the Kiev regime to you know worshiping these Nazi collaborators, the Banderites, who also massacred large numbers of Poland in West Ukraine, that has kind of been dropped um, in a mutual hatred of Russia and Russians that takes priority. Um, and I do think it's very possible that 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 Poland could at some point decide to take uh, security responsibility for West Ukraine without some type of actual uh, annexation of the territory there.
0: Europeans warned of permanently high energy costs. Consumers will have to pay for the abandonment of cheap Russian supplies, the EU says. I understand the politics behind this, uh, Mark Schloboda, in terms of the international politics, the EU and the United States. But how practical of a position is this when you get down to the real grassroots grassroots consumer level and how willing are Europeans to pay exorbitantly high gas prices behind what is proving to be a failed U.S. policy?
3: Yeah, I mean, well, that, that's a question that will have to be played out at the polls in the future. Right now, the political elite in power in the EU countries is perfectly willing to make this to make, have, on behalf of their citizens, uh, to have them make this sacrifice, right, of doing without Russian energy and having, therefore, to get, less and much more expensive energy from elsewhere in the world in a market where they're trying to do without russian energy pushes the price up around the world for everyone um, and increases the amount of scarcity at least for them locally russian energy will still get to market it will just be to asia and other energies will have to be redirected from around the world to europe at much greater cost of course, uh, for the distances, uh, involved. Um, the, the political elite right now is willing to do that. It remains to be seen in the future when these, uh, the, the costs of this increased energy and resulting inflation, uh, after it's had a, some months, year or two, uh, effect on the European people, the people of the EU, whether they will continue to elect politicians to office who are inflicting this amount of suffering on them, not of, out of any pragmatic values, of course, uh, but for the the political ideology of separating economically and politically from Russia. Um, Uh, I I don't know actually how much control, uh, if this is bipartisan, uh, will it lead to the rise of whole new parties in Europe who break away from the foreign policy consensus of the major parties? Um, It's going to have to be played out in uh, EU politics, but over the long term, this isn't something that we will see a result from at the polls for at least a year or two, I think.
2: I'll say this in my opinion, Mark. If they are stupid enough to turn their continent into a third world country because they hate Putin, then it should be a third world country. But at any rate, you know what I mean? I mean, hey, man, if they make that choice, then that's exactly what it should be. Okay. Uh, Moldova's former, former president says he was arrested on trumped up charges. Your thoughts on what's happening? I don't know anything about that. What's happening in Moldova?
3: Yeah, so uh, Moldova's former president Igor Dodon, who was uh, just out of office and just over the last year, uh, he was a communist. Uh, he was elected a, a communist, but not really a communist. You know, um, he was uh, elected in there uh, on a uh, kind of a, a pro-Russian sentiment. Uh, the 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 country is divided. Uh, quite often, politically on whether to lean towards Russia uh, and the Eurasian Economic Union or towards Europe and the EU. Uh, but in the last year and a half, we saw a finally a, a complete victory for the pro-EU forces, pro-Western forces. And it seems that they are using this opportunity on, on, on indeed what do seem to be uh, trumped up charges uh, simply now as act. Against any politicians in the country who are pro-Russian, much much as as uh, kind of a lighter form of what is actually happening in Ukraine at the moment, when we've seen the uh, you know the literal arrest and imprisonment of uh, the. Uh, uh, the nominally pro-Russian party leaders uh, uh, of um, Eastern Ukraine, uh, the Platform for Life. Uh, of, of course, uh, that party is now banned in all of its activity as the previously the Communist Party was banned in Ukraine in 2014 and all of the other existing leftist parties in the country. But they've gone further now and basically uh, banned every party that has uh, ever criticized what uh, the course of the country since the overthrow of the government in 2014. And it seems like they're beginning on this road in Moldova now that the pro-Western forces have power Uh, exacerbated, of course, by what is happening next door in Ukraine. And it has to be remembered that Moldova itself is technically a divided country with a frozen conflict. Since uh, the early 1990s, there has been a pro-Russian, quote unquote, breakaway region there, Transnistria across uh, the uh, river um, that... um, Um, still leans towards Russia and is still existing under a, uh, you know, not recognized uh, authorities there um and there are fears that Moldova could be dragged into this conflict there have already been some explosions uh in Moldova in Transnistria um and there are some russian peacekeeping forces there and moldova uh it it, it would uh, herald a wider destabilizing of eastern Ukraine uh if Moldova was somehow dragged into this conflict
0: if Moldova is dragged in and folks need to understand that Moldova shares a, is on the border of of Ukraine and and so with these explosions who do you have any insight in terms of whose are the the explosions are in support of which side are they
3: yeah well i ahead. mean that's not clear It's not clear from what happened. But of course, the Kiev regime would benefit if the conflict expanded into NATO. I mean, sorry, into Moldova. It would give all greater impetus to cries that NATO should get directly involved against Russia in both countries.
0: Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Beto O'Rourke confronts Texas governor during update on Uvalde elementary school shooting. The Texas Democratic gubernatorial nominee, Beto O'Rourke, confronted Texas governor Gre- Greg Abbott and other officials yesterday during a press conference about Tuesday's deadly shooting uh, at the elementary school. Quote, Greg Governor Abbott, I have something to say. O'Rourke, a former congressman who represented El Paso and is a former Senate and presidential candidate, said, uh, the time... Time to stop. The next shooting is right now, and you're not doing it, O'Rourke told Abbott. This, while it is stated, uh, Ted Cruz, F you, anger erupts at gun-loving GOP after mass slaughter in Texas. Democratic lawmakers and the father of a 14-year-old who was killed in the previous school shooting were among those who unleashed their anger and ire on Republicans. I said, uh, After this shooting, I said this on Tuesday, here we are again, and we're stuck in neutral with this uh, as senators are set to leave town for a 10-day recess without action on gun violence. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's a pediatrician and health reform activist, Dr. Margaret Flowers. As always, Margaret, welcome back.
4: Uh, It's great to be with you, Garland
0: and Wilmer. Here we are again, and the senators are set to leave town for a ten-day recess without action on this gun violence crisis. What say you, Dr. Margaret Flowers?
4: Well, I mean, let's recognize that there's been you know tremendous amount of gun violence this year, and not that long ago, you know, there was a shooting in Buffalo that killed a number of people. This is a a huge problem in the United States. It's something that neither the Democrats or Republicans have been willing to tackle because the reality is that the the roots of this violence are pretty deep. And to tackle gun violence really means challenging a whole lot of issues in this country, you know, issues of the, of the militarization of our society. Of the you know the way that we raise our children in schools with police you know where they're criminalized you know from a, a young age particularly in lower income uh, communities the the worship of guns the the praise for the military you know the everywhere you go it's it's a and and the inequality we know that you know we have studies that show that the greater inequality there is in a society the greater violence there is. We don't meet people's basic needs. We don't show people in this society that they're valued or cared for. And these are all of the different things. It's not just about regulating guns, although that's you know, very important. Why are people allowed to get these assault rifles makes no sense. Um, but the real roots of the violence in our society run very deep in this country.
2: You know, I'm glad you said that, Marker, because I've always felt like this. What we are supposed to talk about is America at the most superficial level. You know that 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 we can we can muster. So it's something simple. It was either you know it's not guns or it is guns. It's not this gun law or that law gun law. And when what we need to do is have a deep discussion. I mean, it's like let's say a person has a substance abuse problem. Well, when they're going to get help, they're going to dig deep. They're going to find the abuse and the young child and all kinds of things that got them there. But you've got to ask the tough questions. And one of the things that in the U.S. Empire is because we're doing, we're still doing such dastardly deeds abroad. The last thing that the U.S. Empire can afford is a deep dive into why we have these terrible problems um, as part of our. As and I got to say this now, that have become part of our culture. Market.
4: Yeah, no, I agree with you hundred percent. And I think, and it's not just abroad. Look at the militarization of our communities here. Look at the the systemic racism in our judicial system and our policing and you know and I have to wonder I understand that the police officers you know they tried to stop the gunman from going into the school and then they didn't follow him in and I have to wonder like what was going through their minds that they weren't willing to run in there did they value those children's lives or not you know you have to wonder where we are.
0: You know Margaret I'm old enough to remember air raid drills When I was in elementary school, the air raid siren would sound and we'd have to huddle under our desks as though that was going to help us in a nuclear attack. But the the enemy we were facing then was, as it was portrayed to us, the the evil Soviet Union uh, was going to send a missile and and blow up uh, California. And, of course, kids all across the country uh, had to go through this. Well, now. So we hear now this discussion about the impact that this is having on the psyche of our children. Uh, can you speak to that not only as a pediatrician, but speak to that as a mother with school-aged children? Um, the, the the psychological toll and the stress, because we once a month would have to huddle under our desks when we heard the siren. But we didn't really know who the enemy was. We didn't know what the enemy was. It was just something ominous out there. But now these kids are seeing this play itself out on their televisions. Uh, we, We saw it in Buffalo on Saturday. Then we saw it in Los Angeles on Sunday. Then we saw it in Texas at a hair salon the same Sunday. I mean, this is real for these kids.
4: Yeah. And, you know, my children, are my young children are very young. They're five and six and we don't have a TV. So they're not, you know, they're not exposed to this, to this news. Um, But, but, you know, I think about the fact that my older children, I also have three adult children and the the video games that their friends were playing. You know, I didn't let them play them, but then they went to their friends' houses and played them anyway. As did my son. I mean, I remember... The, the first, I think it was a call of duty or something right. like that. And they were shooting at people in burkas, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is like, what are we teaching the children? Um, you know, just the other day, my, my daughter who's five said, oh, I saw someone in a hoodie. He's a bad guy. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, where did that come from? Uh, no, people in hoodies are not bad people. Everybody wears hoodies at some time. You know, it just... Um, I don't know where these cultural beliefs are coming from, uh, but they're definitely out there. But I just think of the whole, I mean, everywhere you go, the military is praised. Do we ever talk about what the military is actually doing? Um, we look at people like, uh, what was the guy that, that shot Kyle something? Um, that, Rittenhouse, I think. Yeah. You know, and what did he get? He, he became a hero for doing that. So what are these these young people that are being influenced by this, you know, gun violence and this very kind of right-wing extremism, they're they're not seeing the cops getting held accountable for their violence. They're not even seeing, you know, civilians being held accountable for their violence. They're, they, you know, so this is not stopping this trend.
0: In, in fact, just quickly going to, to your point, uh, uh, Margaret, about the military, and and we don't see the, the ill effects of what they do. Joe Biden goes to Buffalo on Tuesday and cries do- crocodile tears and wrings his hands about white supremacy and Nazism and how it's infiltra- infiltrated the United States. And then he turns around and signs a $30 billion bill to send money to Nazis in the Ukraine.
4: Right. And then sends troops to Somalia as well. You know,
0: like, exactly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's all performative. You know, even looking at what Beto work was doing, it all just looks very performative to me as well. To really deal with the, the problems in our society does mean, Garland, like you said, it means a deep dive and real systemic change and a real, even as Dr. King would say, a revolution of values. Right. <laughs>
2: Um, Robert Reich writes an interesting article, The Billionaire Bombardment of uh, Democracy, and he says, isn't it time Biden and the Democrats came out clearly against the billionaires abusing their wealth and power? And I'm going to stop right there. Uh, what's, the, the Democrats, either of these parties—I I mean, I'm going to get a little carried away here, but you, you understand, Margaret—that either of these parties, the Democrats just passed $40 billion, and when you look at it, all but $6 just goes right into the hands of the oligarchs, the military, just disappears right into the national security state. That Robert Reich is still trying—that people are out here still trying to pretend as though one of these parties isn't completely behold. Held in, taken over and controlled like puppets by the absolute billionaires and corporations. Just that, to me, I find almost offensive, Margaret.
4: Yeah, no, you would think that people would, you know, learn by now. It's it's just been so obvious for so long now that on all of the major issues, both the Democrats and Republicans are failing the people. They're serving the corporate interests over and over again. They use a couple of wedge issues to pit, you know, the two parties against each other, but really they're on the same team. And the suppression of democracy in this country is something that People I don't think even recognize if you go out of the country and see others where they do practice democracy, it's such a stark difference. But but any you know, the, the Democrats and Republicans control the system so well that they're able to really squash any challenges to it in the electoral realm um, so that, you know, that's why we're organizing. That's why, you know, we need strong social movements and people fighting back and solidarity. That's how we're going to overcome the, what's going on right now
0: and And to Garland, to to further Garland's point, Robert Reich is making this out to be uh, as as though I think the, the Democrats are are virtuous. or he's playing to the stereotype uh, that the Republicans are the hawks and the Democrats uh, are the doves when, in fact, you know, this, all of these defense spending bills are coming out of a democratically controlled House Senate with a Democratic president. So, and, and to the point now where the Republican opposition to a lot of this now makes them, per, or, 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 is a perception that they are actually anti-war. Mm. Yeah,
4: and there's this, you know, it's an interesting, uh, we posted an article a long time ago about the ratchet effect and how the the both political parties just keep moving farther and farther to the right. And why the Democrats want to court, you know, the, the Republican base, I don't know, uh, but they they constantly kind of move to the right to try to, to appeal more broadly, I guess. And so this whole country has just been moving farther and farther to the right. And that's where we are. It's no surprise that we're supporting Nazis. In, in Ukraine, we've been supporting fascists in Brazil and in Bolivia, you know, and other places around the world. Um, so again, you know, the, we need to build a strong social movement on the left here in this country to counter what's happening. That's, that's the only way we're going to change what's going on right
0: now. And and, and thank you, Bill Clinton, for the Democratic Leadership Council, because that's what started the move of the Democratic Party to the right.
2: Yeah. And, and this is not to say uh, any defense of the Republicans, because all the when they we already know all they're going to do is come in and there's going to be austerity and then they're going to be politicians in service to what they see as the church, which is their, you know, evangelical Christian. So we already know what's coming from them. But the Democrats set the table for them to come in by absolutely not keeping any of the. They made some decent promises. They've kept none of them but war
4: just, you know, I would say the Republicans are very upfront front about what they're going to do. The Democrats try to make it sound like they're doing one thing, but then they do another. So I always said the Republicans stab you, you know, in the front. The Democrats stab you in the back. And that's where we are.
0: Dr. Margaret Flowers, very well said. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
2: We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Ex-Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook admitted under oath that Hillary Clinton greenlit the spread of the Trump Alpha Bank story to the press, even though the narrative's accuracy rang alarm bells. Is John Durham doing an accurate investigation or is this a cover-up? Joining us now to talk about this, we have Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. Well, Jim, you know how I feel about this. I am very suspicious that John Durham is in any way, shape, or form going to do anything other than grab a few little guys at the bottom and slap them on the wrist. But I don't know. Maybe you see it differently. What are your thoughts, Jim? You
5: no, know, I've said that before on the show. I don't think you know the big fish will be broiled on this one. I think uh, yeah. And what what are the legal charges against Clinton anyway? You know she. She did dirty political tricks and put something out in the press that was kind of phony, and you know. But she, they're never going to find a, a, a I think, a reason, un, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt legal charge against her that would uh, survive a real trial. And you know, and again, they're not that much interested. Durham himself is part of the state apparatus, and he's a protege of William Barr, and. Uh, They're going for political points against the Clinton campaign in general. They'll score those points, no question about it. Republicans will use this investigation to score political points. And Sussman, you know, I read an interesting article about how in The Hill today about uh, MOOCs, because MOOC wouldn't say something that, that Clinton didn't want him to say, and that, you know, Mook might be playing to the jury here in the sense that Sussman uh, doesn't really have a defense on the charge that he lied about what he did. Because if he built the Clinton campaign for his hours talking to the FBI, then he lied about what he did. But he's appealing to a jury, and it's interesting that it's a jury trial, who might be sympathetic to Clinton. And what Mook said is we – yeah, Clinton, Hillary wanted to put that out to the media because we didn't trust the FBI because we wanted to get in front of the FBI because we didn't trust the FBI after what? Comey did to us. And Comey did do some nasty, you know, his statements about Quentin were very bizarre and shouldn't have been made. And uh, uh, so, you know, they might be playing to get some reasonable doubt on a few couple of members of the jury of the Washington jury pool to maybe uh, find Sussman not guilty. And, you know, so what if it's used as a political tool against Quentin? The Republicans are going to say that anyway. Uh, So I don't know. You know, I think at the end of the day, Durham as a prosecutor is not going to go after the biggest fish and certainly not the FBI Uh, Leadership, he'll go after a few people, and the Republicans will make political hay out of it.
2: Well, yeah. So uh, you know, uh, and you right at the end, you hit on my thoughts. You know, if I think of myself, if I'm an investigator and I'm trying to find who's done something wrong, who's violated the law, I'm not going towards Clinton. I'm going towards Comey, because what I see here is it is so blatantly obvious that the FBI was involved in a criminal operation here, and what I one. One could make an argument that it was an attempted coup or a preemptive coup and then actually a, a, an attempted coup because the FBI worked with Sussman. They worked with this guy. They, Michael Sussman, here's the same guy who – and if I'm, if I'm Durham, I'm bringing Mueller in and I'm saying to Robert Mueller, wait a minute. You found 20,000 texts between Peter Strzok and uh, Lisa Page. And you erased them. That is that that's evidence, my friend, you should go to jail. I'm saying, wait a minute. You guys are telling me that you signed off on warrants, excuse me, on court documents to go to the FISA court that said you believed that the Steele dossier was valid when you had already investigated it and you had written otherwise that you knew it wasn't valid. You worked with Michael Sussman on the DNC servers and you never went and got the servers. You simply said, we'll take the word of what a third party uh, 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 corporation says, which then meant you would have nothing to introduce into evidence if you did find out that find the hacker. So if I'm Durham, I'm looking and saying, boy, the FBI was corrupt and violating the law left and right. But that's not what Durham's doing, and there's no way he's going after the real thing here because it would shake the pillars of our system if people found out the truth. Am I overstating things, Jim Kavanaugh?
5: Well, I think you're right that, you know, we've said this before that the FBI, they, they're not going to go after the FBI. I think you meant the FBI didn't go after the crowd. The crowd strike had the, the hard drives from that. Uh, and that's right. The FBI, you
2: know, and that was Mueller, and Mueller. As I said, about the Mueller investigation it never happened, and it will never go away. Never and, and, and add this, Jim, and it was Michael Sussman that that hired CrowdStrike. How can the FBI say we didn't know he was Hillary's law? We had no idea he was Hillary's lawyer, and he was working on behalf of Hillary when they had worked with him on behalf of Hillary just a few months before.
5: Yeah, and and they knew about Danchenko. They knew that he was a liar, and they they put about and you know he told them that. The, Steel. dossier was just a bunch of speculation. And, and so they knew all this. In early 2007, they went ahead with all of these documents and all of these court filings and all of these affidavits. And you're absolutely right. So they were, you know, they weren't innocent victims here. They were, you know, uh, at, at best, you know, well, uh, e- easily uh, seduced, you know, willingly seduced into this and went along with it and promoted it. And as you say, you know, I I don't think that uh, that any prosecutor of Durham stature in Washington is going to be willing to follow that all the way through. Uh, you know, the, the typical template for the uh, for investigations like this is that they go forward, they get a few uh, you know sensational headlines out of it, and they get a couple of uh, scapegoats, but you know they're not going to get much more. And as I say, you know. The people who could actually brought up, as you're saying, people who could actually brought up on criminal charges or at least you know serious uh, professional punishment would be in the FBI. You know Dirty tricks by the Clinton campaign are not necessarily illegal. Putting forward a, a, a unsourced story as if it were true happens all the time. so that's not really a criminal charge. It would really be to, going, going after the intelligence and police state apparatus, which they're not going to by any means uh, undermine.
2: In a story that reminds me of when O.J. said he wanted to find the real killer, the Hollywood lawyer working with Hunter Biden has recruited a team of more than 30 lawyers and investigators to probe the backstory of how a laptop containing years of personal and intimate emails and business records found its way to news reporters and authorities. What difference? It seems fairly obvious. It seemed to me. It seems to me. I'm just throwing it out there, Jim. That Hunter stumbled into, in his usual stupor, he stumbled in, into a, uh, into a computer store, handed some guy a laptop, and probably blacked out for a couple days and didn't even remember he had a laptop, much less that he went to a computer store. I don't know. Your thoughts, man? Do you think they're going to find the backstory? And what the heck is a backstory?
5: Well, this, this is a Hollywood lawyer who created – helped to get the contract for The Simpsons. And you know, if – not The Simpsons. Uh, uh, South, South Park.
2: How appropriate.
5: Ever, ever, ever uh, the content for an episode of South Park, is Hunter Biden. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what he's doing here, I think they're worried about. The real worry for the Democrats is that the – Republicans will pursue congressional investigation they'll go after Joe Biden because Hunter Biden got money from Ukraine, got a lot of money from Ukraine. And Hunter Biden told his sister, I had to give Papa 50 percent of everything I made, generally speaking. So that does that mean he got 50 percent? Half of what, you know, he was uh, getting from Ukraine. That's a real story that would have a hell of a, a bite. And the Republicans may go after that in congressional investigations. Uh, You know, Hunter has already made a fool of himself and, you know, acknowledged his hooker and blow uh, story. And that's a good Hollywood story. But what they need, what what this guy, uh, Kevin, I forget his last name, this lawyer is doing is creating a distraction. He's creating a narrative, which is a mystery story about whether this, you know, who had their hands on this laptop and why they gave it to Giuliani and whether anything was added to it in the process and whether – because it was twice at least that Hunter Biden lost the laptop. He lost one to his – left it at his shrink's place. And uh, that guy is involved. You know, what did he do with it and blah, blah, blah. So it's all going to be a big mystery story that, uh, that he's creating as a diversion from what will be the headline stories if the Republicans start investigating the content of these, these emails and the, uh, the implicit corruption that's involved, perhaps, with Joe Biden himself.
0: That, that sounds eerily reminiscent of the uh, DNC um, server story where the ha- alleged hacking was the distraction to keep people from paying attention to the actual contents of the emails that were released.
5: Exactly. Exactly. And the whole rigmarole about who visited uh, Julian Assange and bringing him into the picture, whether he was the real villain in this, he was the one who did the hacking. You know, this is all uh,
6: subterfuge.
0: Uh,
5: yeah. Whether he was whether he was con- uh, conspiring with Russia. You know, this whole ri- spy story about J- Julian Assange was, as you say a distraction from the content of the email (laughs) and it worked very well
2: uh the smoking gun providing u.s involvement in a 2014 coup in kiev has been removed from youtube after eight years the infamous jeffrey pilot victoria newland admission that they overthrew the government just suddenly disappeared on youtube i guess they maybe had to clean up a few things i don't know what do you think jim
5: yeah, it's kind of shocking that they just so blatantly do this. They, they give any kind of reason for it, any kind of rationale for it. I mean, this was a, a well-known. It's not totally removed from YouTube. But what 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 uh, Joe Lawyer is saying here is that uh, this was always came up first in the uh, in the searches, and it was the best uh, English translation. You know, was, uh, they had the the, the fonting on it. You know. So you could read it easily, you know. And uh, so you could still find this around. It's not totally disappeared from social media. It's still on Rumble. It's still a bunch of places. Uh, But it's just – so it even points – that makes it even more explicit. What are they doing? Who removed it? And for what reasons other than just try to make it a little more difficult for people to get to? Because it makes so clear and so obvious that the United States was engineering – what happened in 2014, the Maidan coup, and you know, the, uh, and, and that the, the United States government didn't give a darn about what the Europeans thought, or what anybody thought they were going ahead with their guy and their program, and they knew that they could insult the E.U. and the Europeans as much as they want and go along with them, which is exactly what's happening now
2: only a thousand times worse. They're, they're, they're de-industrializing and impoverishing the EU and their uh, inept bungling leaders are just, you know, waving them on. I think the, also this to me shows that their narrative is crumbling and they're getting de- desperate, Jim. They're desperate. And I, Do you think it shows that we only got about seconds? Do you think it, it demonstrates that their narrative is crumbling about Ukraine?
5: Well, th- they are all over the place about it now. And it's kind of obvious that they don't quite know what to say Russia is losing the war. No, Russia is taking over these towns. They're, they only have three days left or, they, or the Russian army will collapse. No, you know all of these towns in the east are falling to Russia and they're being surrounded and they're being shelled all the time. So they know that the narrative about Russia, Russia losing the war is going. They know that people are starting to feel, what the heck is this $40 billion for? Why are we just deindustrializing Europe? And they need to make the information You know, fight the information more and control the information as much as they can.
2: Thanks a lot, Jim. You've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
0: We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Ousted Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan gives government six-day ultimatum to announce new elections. Uh, He has warned the government to call a new election within six days, or he will stage a rally and march on the capital, Islamabad, with millions of his supporters. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a podcaster and host of The Left is Dead, James Carey. As always, James, welcome back. I'm always good to be here. So Imran Khan issued the ultimatum today after he joined the rally of thousands of demonstrators in Islamabad with plans to overtake part of Islamabad until the government gives in to his demand for new polls. What's going on here and how much of a threat is Khan to the sitting government?
7: Um I, I think he presents um a fairly Significant threat because, you know, he was elected uh, sort of in a situation like this where you have a two party duopoly and people kind of get sick of both parties. And, you know, as we've kind of seen here, you can't really go backwards on that. So um, I think he is a threat to the established order there. And I think he has quite a bit of popular support around him. I mean, he obviously had thousands out in the Capitol um, as of today. I imagine he will be back with more. I don't doubt that at all. Um, I think his, you know, his largest sin here was pushing these two parties out of power. And then, you know, we have an unstable relationship with Pakistan and people taking on, say, military generals or Pakistani intelligence, the ISI, uh, I don't think ever gets looked at favorably by the U S even if we know, say the ISI often works with the Taliban or Al Qaeda. Um, I think The popular support, like I said, once you have a broken system like that, it doesn't go backwards, right? You can't go back to the two parties you always had. It's just like here. Uh, We had a Donald Trump, and I don't think anything will ever be normal again. It's obviously not normal now, no matter how much people pretend. So I think Khan definitely represents that kind of threat to the establishment.
2: The other thing I I think is, and that is uh, here... Uh, In this particular instance, the people of Pakistan, people around the world know he revealed um, the letter that he had. They know that the United States empire had a hand in this in this. So the stain of uh, corruption by the U.S. is going to be internally there and externally throughout the world. People are looking at it and there's no way to pretend that the U.S. wasn't involved. And I think that's a, a factor here that won't allow the Pakistani government just to continue, even if they are able to hold on to power and et cetera, which they may be, but just to continue as though things are normal, too. What do you think about that element?
7: I think that's the case everywhere, isn't it? I mean, any time we stick our nose in something, whether the people of a nation like their leader or not, what do they normally say? Well, you know, you get out of here. We don't want it. Look at Guaido in Venezuela or the MEK in Iran. You know, every time we pick somebody, they're a real loser. And people tend to, you know, they tend to not want to be involved because they understand what when we help select a leader, that means total subservience to our agenda. And that's why we selected them. So having U.S. fingerprints on anything, I don't think is, um, it doesn't have as much prestige as it did, did, say, you know, post-war, early Cold War era where all the U.S. interfering was seen as a a positive. I think after 70 years of empire, that's not really looked that way anymore. And any time. Uh, US fingerprints are on something people know that this is probably not in their best interest
0: as you look at particularly um if you if you look at uh, at Pakistan and the kind of historic the longer term historic perspective and the United States involvement not only in their government but in overthrowing governments um you know Khan uh the the, the, Pac- the people of Pakistan sh- should Should have seen this. Should see this coming. Should be wary of it, and and that I would think would play a greater factor in the Pakistani's support for him. Hopefully, that makes sense.
7: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's like I said. It's the resisting the U.S. Right? I mean, um, when was Iran?
0: Benazir Bhutto, I think, is who I was trying to think of. (laughs) The United States was involved in her overthrow, I think.
7: Yeah. And I mean, you know, every time we see something like right before uh, the killing of Soleimani, you know, we saw their protests in Iran against the government. And then what unified them more than the U.S. being involved in killing somebody they loved and trying to change the government they were under? Um, Nobody wants the U.S. there. And I think that ends up putting support, you know, behind people like Khan, Maduro, whoever. You know, uh, it's just opposition to the imperialism from the U.S. Because, like I said, you know, what's ever coming down the pipe of the U.S. is going to be worse. And the people of Pakistan know that we have this precarious relationship and always have. You know, they've been an unreliable partner in Afghanistan as far as the intelligence services go and military. And Khan was kind of picking fights with them. And those are the people who, have, you know, slightly, they have attributed to making people's lives more miserable in Afghan in Pakistan and in Afghanistan, but in their own country. Um, the military and security services have definitely let a lot go on. We've... The U.S. has overlooked a lot of, you know, issues with them in order to let them do so. And I think people kind of see, you know, the system that made Khan is not a good system anyway. He exists for a reason, you know.
2: And I'll say this regarding Maduro, you know, having experience in Venezuela, I can say this. The Chavista movement, Chavismo, whatever you want to call it, movement, Chavez movement was strong and he was you know Chavez's deputy he was the second in charge and the argument that somehow the people didn't like him or didn't want him never really worked they're they're chavistas to you know to their soul and when you go there they they shake their fist i mean you go to the littlest town and they'll shake their fist and say we are the sons and daughters of Chavez and we will fight for our you know they really mean business there
0: plus added added to that garland when you look at what What the Venezuelan government has been able to do, what they've been able to deliver, versus what has been promised by a number of Pakistani governments. Yeah. There's a huge difference there yeah. as well.
2: So um, uh, here's an interesting story uh, in com. Russia-Ukraine war. George Bush's admission of his crimes in Iraq was no gaffe. The former president's confusion over the invasions of Iraq and Ukraine should lead to Western soul-searching, not mirth. Well, we certainly know. I- I'll put it like this. It's not that it'll lead to soul-searching. What he said was a perfect representation of we can do anything we want, and it's fine, and no one else can. And I, he can even make the mistake and say, oops, I'm in Iraq, and it can be obvious. But from the perspective of NATO, from the from the perspective of the West and the U.S. empire, because they have the power, they can do whatever they want, and the weak suffer what they must, as they say. Your thoughts?
7: Yeah, I, that was it. I mean, Putin's not allowed to be doing what we would do. Uh, that's why everyone laughed in that room when he made that gaff, you know, quote-unquote gaffe. Um, so everybody laughed in the room because they, they know it's true that, well, I don't think it's true anymore, but they they think it's true that we can just go around, you know, sort of dictating terms for everybody. And uh, I think, man, I, you know, they're not willing to look at any economic or social issues that have led us to the point where people, like, say, vote for a Donald Trump or drop out of voting altogether. They're definitely not going to look at the imperial issue that has defined the last two decades, which seems insane because it's been 20 years you have to eventually reflect on this otherwise you'll end up schizophrenic like england which maybe we will um but i think that yeah there's an implicit failure because these people are still telling you lies about syria and about russia and about ukraine uh the same people in the same media are doing the same things and the same people who were working in cabinets that persecuted these wars are still in power you know they cycle in and out with different administrations. But all these people are still there. You know, even Donald Trump had to pull John Bolton up from the sewer. So the names are all the same. They've all stayed in power. No one's moved. No one's been held accountable, that's for sure. And I think that there's definitely a move to avoid that. And really now, thanks to Trump, this whole move to normalize Bush has really helped him out.
0: (sighs) Bush observed that a lack of checks and balances in Russia had allowed, quote, one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, Ukraine. Iraq, too. Anyway, I'm 75. Um, (laughs) uh, No one in mainstream media has really picked up that ball and, and and spoken to how deep that really is. I mean, once, once again, mainstream Western media does not do its job. Yeah, obviously.
7: Yeah, it's an admission. I mean, right? It's right there. It's an right. admission. It's the same as Condoleezza Rice being interviewed and saying, well, you can't just make up accusations of chemical weapons and invade a country. You know? These are, you can't, it's hard to believe that they even say it, but yeah, it's exactly the same. They, I would say it's actually not the same because Iraq is thousands of miles away from me and I don't think it's a danger to me at any time, whereas a NATO, you know, base in Ukraine would probably be something that Russians would look more, you know,
0: uh, at
7: favorably on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, rightfully so. You know, I mean, we've been through a Cuban missile crisis. We know what these things look like and, um, I think that, you know, Russia sees a threat, but we won't acknowledge that there was just nothing there. We know this was a crime. We, we talk about how the Iraq war was a crime. We talk about how it was all, you know, on false pretenses, but nothing has happened. I mean, Obama himself said, well, let's move forward, not look back. And That was supposed to, I guess that was our introspection on this, but that's crazy because, I mean, the national wealth has been dove into this war on terror and now, you know, Look what we have to show for it.
2: Well, and and again, this is a perfect example, too, because the United States basically said um, uh, Iraq, which is like 7000 miles away or something, that Iraq, if armed with whatever WMDs, is a threat to us. And we drew a red line that was 7000 miles long. From here to Iraq, right? Recently, the United States said that if China built a base in the Solomon's Islands, 7,391 miles from our shores, that would be a red line. And the U.S. would not rule out military action. Drawing a red line, 7,391 miles long. Yet Ukraine is less than a millimeter from, uh, from Russia, and the U.S. is building gigantic bases and uh, bioresearch labs and all that other stuff, and Russia doesn't have a red line that's less than a millimeter wide. Your thoughts?
7: Uh, yeah, it's, it's wild what the U.S. has gotten away with. I mean, we've admitted to helping sink a Russian ship. We think, we're think we thinking about sending special forces to guard the embassy. We've done multiple things that I'm not you know, a legal expert here, but they sure look like acts of war since we're taking credit for them and um, the US I don't think it has the muscle to back that up but like you said Ukraine is right on their border and here we are blatantly on you know right on the Polish Ukrainian border funneling weapons over we're very clearly a participant in this war it's clearly a proxy war this is not just some Ukrainian war of defense as it's sort of portrayed in the media this is an open proxy war just like the cold war would have been you know when we knew who was funding what side and um i think that it, it's ridiculous to think that Russia should just accept nato you know encroaching on them like that to the final country on their border essentially and i think frankly it's ridiculous for nato to exist obviously you know and i think that that's a discussion nobody's going to have because the last big operation nato did do was invading iraq and they had to even then a lot of the members didn't want to sign on and i don't think a lot of them are going to sign on to fight china or fight russia openly or anything like that
0: James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Wall Street Journal reports uh, Fed minutes show urgency for raising rates to tame high inflation. Officials at this month's meeting were in agreement on the need for further half-point increases in June and July. Is this the wrong solution to the inflation problem? And if so, whose interests are being served by this approach? No pun intended. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He has a Ph.D. in political economy. He teaches economics at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California. He is the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, Dr. Jack, welcome back. My pleasure. So the Wall Street Journal reports that the minutes from the Fed's May 3rd through 4th meeting released yesterday show that uh, Federal Reserve officials discussed the possibility that they would raise interest rates to levels high enough to slow economic growth deliberately as the central bank races to combat high inflations. Officials, quote, noted that a restrictive stance of policy may well become appropriate according to the minutes. Uh, Dr. Jack, you've been on this show for months and months and months, along with some others, saying that this is a supply issue and that raising interest rates will not, it's not a demand problem, it's a supply problem, and that raising rates will not solve the supply problem. So, if that's true, and I have no reason to doubt you, then they can't be this stupid. So whose
8: interests are they actually looking out for? Well, they're they're looking out for big corporations and, and the bankers. You see, when you uh, raise interest rates, uh, the bankers like it because that increases their, their net interest income. They're all for raising interest rates. That's a new profit center that they weren't getting much out of here when rates were were super low. So the bankers like it. Uh, you know, the big corporations like it because they hide behind uh, the inflation. Uh, which is associated here. I mean, you know, you're raising rates supposedly to deal with inflation. They hide behind inflation uh, to claim, oh, there's a shortage, or they engineer a shortage like a baby formula uh, crisis here, Uh, or the oil companies uh, who could today pump uh, 2 million barrels more a day like they were a couple years ago but are refusing to do it. Uh, Thus, we got this, uh, you know, gasoline price uh, hike here going on. So, you know, there are certain segments of the capitalist class who like inflation and who like higher interest rates. There are some segments that don't like higher interest rates and who get hit hard by inflation, uh, especially smaller businesses and medium sized businesses, those that are interest rate sensitive, uh, you know, like uh, housing and automobiles and so forth. but you know, a lot of these companies are are monopolistic companies. Just a few of them running the show. And uh, you know, even even if uh, higher uh, interest rates um, you know reduce their volume of sales, uh, they can raise their prices, or and are raising their prices. that make up for more in profits that they're losing from volume sales. You see, so uh, there's there's a lot of uh, businesses uh, and investors who, who like the idea of higher interest rates. Uh, yeah, it has a negative effect on the stock market, uh, but they know that that when the stock market bottoms out, they're going to be able to jump in and, uh, you know, get some nice fat profits as as it recovers. Plus, some companies, zombie companies, can't handle the higher interest rates. Those are on junk bonds, you know. Uh, They know they're going to go under, and that's nice, cheap pickings for the companies that aren't going to go under. They're going to just acquire those companies for pennies on the dollar. So it's a complicated situation, but to get back to the Fed, the Fed has no control whatsoever over supply. In fact, raising interest rates will cause some industries to reduce Uh, their business investment, their real investment, which we see is going on already. And that reduces the amount of supply out there. So in in a way, raising interest rates has a negative effect on supply in some industries. But it has no effect. The Fed has no effect whatsoever on supply issues. It can affect demand issues but only if it raises rates so much that it precipitates a recession. That decision has already been made by the elites of this country that they're going to flush out inflation by raising interest rates and bringing the economy in certain industries, particularly interest rate-sensitive industries, to a halt. Exactly what they did in 1981, 82. That was the choice. Solution policy to shake out inflation, raise interest rates. In other words, take it out on the backs of consumers and workers and households, get people laid off so they don't have the wage income, so they don't have the demand for goods. In other words, it's a supply problem back then, again, with the Middle East and oil. And the solution was, well, let's take it out on demand. Yeah, you can stop inflation but you precipitate a a, a serious recession, and that's the road we're on because that's the decisions that have been made. They could slow down the economy and inflation by raising taxes, but that's anathema. You know, we see see that in the last two years. They will not raise taxes. They will not uh, recoup any of Trump's four and a half trillion dollar tax cuts for businesses and investors. They're not gonna do that, right? and uh, they can't afford to uh, cut uh, or, or increase uh, social program spending. They already decided uh, last year that Build Back Better and all that. That's the end of that. you know. So they're not going to cut that anymore or increase it anymore, especially since they're spending all the hundreds of billions now on this this war uh, and and going at Cold War, going after economic war, going after Russia and a hot war. Uh, you know, funding, um, giving all this free money to Zelensky and the Ukrainians. Uh, so, fiscal policy is out. Tax cut spending is out as a solution. All you got left is monetary policy, and they've decided to precipitate a recession. I've been predicting this since last year that this is coming, and I also will predict here right now that they will, the Fed will not be able to go through with its planned three, four who knows what, 50 basis points each time interest rate hikes, the 10-year benchmark treasury won't make it to 5% before we have a recession. And you already see some economists beginning to realize this and talk about this. The Fed will not be able to raise interest rates seven times. It will not be able to pull back QE the way it's planning long-term, they will precipitate a significant slowdown in the economy before that actually happens. You know, we've never had double-digit inflation, and it is double-digit, it's not eight and a half, it's double-digit. We've never had that kind of inflation without a recession in the last 50 years since 1973 it's always happened and it's gonna happen this time as well how does the effect dr. Jack
2: the effect of the global market slowdown um, the you know the no no end in sight for the increase of commodities and fuel prices and things of that nature affect it because in 81 certainly we had it but you didn't have you know some of the the global issues how can can that compound it can it turn it into a Depression. I mean, what
8: are we looking at here? Well, it makes the inflation more intractable, right? Uh, Very definitely. I mean, in 81, it was mostly uh, the Middle East and the Saudis and and Persian Gulf and so forth. But this time, it's not just the oil. It's across all kind of commodities that normally come out of Russia uh, that are going to cause, are causing uh, prices to go up. And the Fed can't do anything about that. That's a supply thing. That's a sanctions thing, you see. It's not Putin's inflation. It's Biden's inflation because of the sanctions and the war. So commodity prices are gonna to continue to go up. And as you have shortages, then other businesses say, oh, there's shortages coming in commodities out of Russia. Let's start buying up what supply is out there and let's start hoarding it. And that drives commodity prices up even more. And it allows these commodity speculators, you know, uh, financial people, uh, to jack up the prices even more. So commodity inflation isn't going away even when you have a recession here precipitated by the Fed, that's not going away. That's a supply issue of various sorts. You also have now the beginning, I think, of what we call inflationary expectations. The very difficult, unless you precipitate a recession, to shake that out, right? But we also have another development occur- occurring. And it's tied in with this general global situation, and that is a sharp rise in unit labor costs by businesses because productivity is collapsing. We've had the worst productivity figure in months since 1947. When productivity collapses, well, then your unit, unit costs go up and businesses pass it on into inflation uh, to to the consumer. They will hide behind saying, oh, it's the wage increase. They'll, they'll blame wages for it, but it's productivity collapse and unit labor cost rises. That's a new factor overlaid on all of this that's beginning. You can't stop that with Fed interest rate hikes either. So you've got all these forces building upon each other, not least of which is, is, is widespread price gouging by corporations everywhere, taking advantage of the situation. All that's going to continue. But you will precipitate of a, a recession, which means we are headed for the worst stagflation in in our modern history, worse than the 1970s. That's coming. You talked about raising taxes would be one solution. How so? Well, if you raise raise taxes, that. Uh, uh, on on businesses in in particular, because they're the ones that have all the money. But you raise taxes, that reduces the amount of disposable income by businesses and and by households. They spend less, right? And you spend less, uh, that uh, you know relieves the demand pressure. There's some demand going on behind the uh, you know the inflation, but it's I'd say it's at least two thirds, three fourths uh, supply issues going on. Uh, so yeah, that would uh, relieve it uh, a, a little bit. But the U.S. is not going to do that. You know, they will not touch tax hikes uh, on businesses. You know, it's a it's a third rail. It's an electric rail. They will not touch this in Congress. You know, it's interesting that the U.K. is now saying, well, we better raise a windfall profits tax here uh, to uh, discourage some of this. But do you hear any of that discussion going on in the U.S. by Biden, and the Democrats in Congress? No way. They will not touch the, t- the Trump tax cuts. And in and,
0: and Britain, just to reiterate, because Br- I saw that today and I think it was the Financial Times that they're talking about raising the windfall profit tax. That's what you're talking about could impact things here. But again, the United States isn't going to do that.
8: Not this time. We used to do that. <laughs> we used to do that in the past in the 70s and 80s, you know, but uh, they're not doing that now. Uh, So what you've got is a record uh, oil company profits, like 40, 50 billion excess profits just in the first quarter of this year. That's it. You know, and that's going to go on and on. Uh, You know, the big corporations are being well taken care of here by these people in Congress. all, All of them. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, sir, thank you
0: so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a very interesting story in antiwar.com and the headline reads, Israel claims Iran used IAEA documents to cover up activity. A new Wall Street Journal report by way of the Israeli government is alleging that Iran had access to the IAEA documents on their own nuclear program between 2000 2004 and 2006 but when you go to the Wall Street Journal article the headline reads as follows Iran used secret UN records to evade nuclear probes. Iran secured access to secret United Nations atomic energy reports almost two decades ago and circulated the documents among top officials who prepared cover stories and falsified a record to conceal suspected past work on nuclear weapons, according to Middle East intelligence officials and documents reviewed by. By the Wall Street Journal. Anti-war reports it as an accusation. The Wall Street Journal reports it as fact. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He is a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, served as a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back.
9: Thanks for having me.
0: The anti-war article states having access to the documents would be an advantage, giving them insight into what the IAEA knew and what it wanted to know. The Israelis are claiming Iran used this to facilitate cover-ups. Scott, your assessment of these accusations that the Wall Street Journal reports as fact.
9: Well, this this is about as stupid as stupid gets um, and I don't mean to be too rude um, but what we're talking about here let's let's parse this out let's li- let's listen to the Wall Street Journal said they're acknowledging that the Israelis are saying nothing was found in Iran that's what they're saying you understand that right this they're saying nothing's found. so what's happening here is what all that's all this is. They're, they're saying, well, nothing was found. We, we couldn't find it. It wasn't there. We, it, it, it should have been there, but it wasn't. And instead of saying it's not there because your intelligence was wrong, they're coming up with a fabricated narrative uh, to explain away their failures. Because it's not the failure of the IAEA. They conducted the inspections. It's the failure of the intelligence that was guiding the IAEA, which the inspectors found no evidence to sustain. So rather than Israel saying the truth, we made all this crap up and we gave it to them uh, to create a perception, uh, they're going to try and pretend, no, this was real good stuff that we had. uh, But the reason why the inspectors didn't find it is because those dastardly Iranians gained access to what? IAEA reports, and then they use this uh, these reports to hide their stuff and keep it from the IAEA. The person that wrote this has no clue what they're talking about. The IAEA is an organization that receives information, sometimes of an intelligence nature, from uh, its member states or from other states supportive of limited aspects of their operation, like Israel, who's not a member, um, because Israel didn't sign the NPT. Israel doesn't allow inspections on their soil. But Israel provided some intelligence information to the IAEA. This information was then, because understand that the IAEA can't r- write a report until they actually investigate something. It's, it's an international organization. So this information was used by inspectors in Iran. To investigate leads, which means the inspectors sat down with the Iranians and said, "We suspect X is happening. We want to go to the site Y." And the Iranians are going, "Why? Why do you want to do this? This is a this is a deviation from the norm. This is a deviation from accepted procedure." And then the inspectors would give them some justification for it. So it became a negotiating process to gain access to the sites. When that was completed. Then the IAEA took the results, combined it with the intelligence, and produced a report after the fact. So whoever wrote this has literally no clue what they're talking about, none whatsoever. It's, it's embarrassing to the person who wrote it, to the people who prompted the person to write it, and it's an embarrassment to the audience that has to read it.
2: Scott, um, in the same area, um, and uh, certainly uh, between Israel and Iranian relations, Israel apparently has admitted to the U.S. that they assassinated an Iranian general, Syed Kodai. They're saying that he was the leader of a covert unit tasked with abductions and killings of Israelis and foreigners, blah, 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 blah. Iran says it's not true. There is great speculation, shall I say, that. This is part of an action by the Israelis to throw a monkey wrench in the JCPOA negotiations. What, do you, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on this?
9: Well, you know, this is a, this is a complicated question because at the same time that we have this um, assassination taking place, etc., we have um, the Israelis holding a major military exercise uh, which focuses on a massive plan to attack Iran, Um, And at the same time, the Jerusalem Post is publishing comments uh, by senior Israeli officials and intelligence officials that say, hey, um, as bad as we think the nuclear deal is, we're actually better off with a bad deal than we are with no deal. So what I see happening is the Israelis are putting pressure on the Biden administration to get a deal done. And they're doing that twofold. One. They're saying, if you don't get a deal done, we may have no choice but to go to war. And here, to prove that we're not just saying this, we're holding the largest exercise we ever had to test out the new battle plan we have against Iran. Uh, And it's got everybody's attention. Everybody's looking at this uh, exercise. And the second is, you know, a long time ago, the Israelis had told the U.S. that they are going to continue uh, to covertly put pressure on because they had asked the U.S. to step up the pressure on Iran uh, to to be more proactive. And the U.S. said no, uh, and the Israelis said, "Well, we are going to continue our covert program of of striking back with net, where where we deem necessary, such as the continuous bombing campaign that's ongoing in Syria today, um, and select assassinations of, uh, of, of of Iranian officials and. The U.S. remained silent on this one, basically not approving of this, but not telling the Israelis not to do it with the understanding that from this pressure, uh, Iran, you know, might seek to. Come up with some sort. I mean, it's continuously misguided assumptions on the part of the U.S. But somehow, by pressuring Iran, uh, we'll get them to the negotiating table instead of what really happens, which is just further to resolve, et cetera. But if, the, if what they're saying is true, the Israelis told the U.S. about this um, again as part of the the process of educating uh, the, the the U.S. It wasn't leaked to the press by Israel. So Israel wasn't leaking this to the press in a deliberate effort to undermine the JCPOA. It was leaked to the press by somebody in the United States uh, because the United States is desperately looking for what they always look for, excuses for failure. Uh, Because right now uh, they are backtracking. They are failing to live up to promises. They've deceived the Iranians. They've lied to the Iranians uh, about, you know, um, guarantees about uh, the lifting of sanctions, et cetera. And Iran said, look, we're ready to sign the deal right now. Right now, we'll sign the deal. But we need your assurances that when you say you're going to lift sanctions, you're going to lift sanctions. And as I've always told you, Biden has no intention of seeing the JCPOA reach fruition. Because it's not American policy. And um, and Biden's under a lot of pressure in Congress to keep sanctions on. And uh, Biden is lying to the Iranians, as Americans always do. Um, and so the negotiations may fail. And so there are some in the Biden White House, because they are all liars. They are all deceitful people who leak this information to the press in hopes that the Iranians would do something that would take the pressure off of the Biden administration uh, in regards to fulfilling the, uh, or completing the JCPOA negotiations. This is just part and parcel of the absolute duplicitous nature of American diplomacy today.
0: So two things. One, you're saying that the Biden administration leaked this, hoping to uh, entice Iran into m- taking action that would then allow the United States to say, you see, we can't trust them. They, 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 they just went and tried to assassinate somebody, and therefore we can't do this. And the other thing I want to ask you is, so are you saying that Israel is operating on parallel tracks? That, one, they really do want the U.S. back into the JCPOA, but at the same time Israel's being Israel and assassinating people, when they deem necessary, and do you have any insight into this allegation of this the Iranian Unit 80, which is tasked with assassinations, abductions, and all kind of other intrigue and mayhem?
6: Well,
9: uh, on, on the first one, yes, I'm saying that the Biden administration is seeking to sabotage the uh, the arrangement. On the second one, uh, I am saying that Israel uh, believes that the, a bad GC, JCPOA at this juncture is um, better than the alternative because Iran has progressed its nuclear program uh, so far that from the Israeli perspective, and I think the Jerusalem Post article talked about this, Iran isn't in the, in the that the world isn't in danger of the hypothetical breakout scenario producing one, uh, you know, material enough for one bomb, but four bombs. Um, and this could be done in a matter of weeks. Now the Israelis say, oh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that Iran would have to do to, uh, to before they can have a weapon." You know, te- you know, <laughs> actually building a weapon, um, <laughs> which is proof Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapons program. But the you know that's the, the Israeli thing is that the the JCPOA would um, walk some of this capability back, uh, so that Israel didn't have to operate under you know, the the potential of an Iranian bomb four Iranian bombs in, in several weeks. Um yeah, and now on the on the unit what what I what I'll say is this, that um if if this guy who's supposed to be some sort of really, you know, smoking hot dude, meaning uh he's really capable, man. And if he runs a unit whose job is to assassinate, kidnap and otherwise uh do bad things to Israelis He hasn't done a very good job. Um, There's not too many kidnapped Israeli officials, dead Israeli officials, anything of that nature. Uh, When the Iranians describe him in their biographies that they publish at the time of his death, and that's when you find out a lot about people, because the Iranians are suddenly very open about the work done by dead people. Uh, We found out a lot about Qasem Soleimani. We found out a lot about the various nuclear scientists that we didn't know. Um, and what the terms they're using for him describe a man who was a a defender of the basically a, a man who was in in Syria uh, working with the Syrians to defend um you know there's a there's a religious shrine in uh, in Damascus that the Iranians are rallied behind it they use that to describe their efforts um in Iran so i think this guy more likely was involved in the covert, the ongoing covert uh, work done by the Iranian, the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps um, unit to build up Iranian capability inside Syria uh, to transfer weapons to Hezbollah and to otherwise uh, put pressure on, Syri- on, on Israel through, you know, what they call the Golan Front. Um, I think that's what he was doing. That's what the Iranians claim he was doing. And they're claiming it with sufficient detail uh, to um, make you think that what they're saying is the truth. Plus, again, if this guy is such a threat worthy of assassination and he commands a unit that's supposed to be killing Jews but isn't, why would you remove him? Because he's the most incompetent person. If you kill him, they may actually replace him with somebody who can do the job. So, no, this is stupidity. This is just... This is a typical Western media spin.
0: Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Consortium News has a piece by Vijay Prashad entitled, Mali and the French Project in Africa's Sahel. On May 15th, the military junta in Mali announced it would no longer be part of the G5 Sahel platform. What is this platform and how does it factor into today's politics in the region? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John J. and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His forthcoming book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back.
6: Thank you for inviting
0: me. So Vijay writes, the G5 Sahel was created in Mauritania in 2014 and brought together the governments of Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger to collaborate over the deteriorating security situation in the Sahel Belt, the region just below the Sahara Desert in Africa, and to increase trade among these countries. Behind the scenes, it was clear that the formation of the G5 Sahel was encouraged by the French government and that despite all the talk of trade, the real focus of the group was going to be security. Dr. Horn, your thoughts on Vijay Prasad's analysis.
6: Well, what's happening, which has been reflected in a recent informative interview by the foreign minister of Mali, is that many of the nations led by Mali and that part of Africa are fed up with French neocolonialism and French imperialism. You might have seen that just the other day in South Africa, you had the economic freedom fighters, which is represented in the parliament in South Africa, uh, lead a major march in Pretoria to the French embassy, uh, complaining about French neocolonialism in Africa. And that neocolonialism, I'm afraid to say, is bound to accelerate, because as we pointed out more than once on these airwaves, in light of the European Union and France's conflict with Russia over the Ukraine, already you see a shift towards Africa. That is to say, uh, Chancellor Scholz of Germany was just in Senegal just this week negotiating with Dakar about possible natural gas shipments uh, to Europe, uh, supplanting uh, Russian national, national natural gas uh, interests. You saw Chancellor Schultz then jet on to South Africa, where he tried to twist the arm of President Ramaphosa with regard to uh, endorsing sanctions against uh, Russia. Mr. Ramaphosa suggested that the Europeans might want to try dialogue, engagement, and negotiation, Uh, but uh, that helpful suggestion received a cold shoulder from the German visitors. And so what you see with regard to, once again, Mali in particular, is that I think the African nations are recognizing (laughs) something that's been apparent for some time now, that they have been at the short end of the stick, uh, with regard to exploitation. And we should not be surprised that this revelation arises in Bamako in the first place, speaking as the capital of Mali, because going back decades to the 1960s independent struggle, you see Mali emerge as a leader of the left in conjunction with Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah, which leads to a rather successful effort by France to destabilize uh, Nkrumah's uh, Mali counterpart, speaking of Modibo Keita. And then, as the Malian foreign minister uh, pointed out in the aforementioned interview that I mentioned, the situation in the Sahel was transformed dramatically by the 2011 uh, NATO intervention in Libya, uh, which not only led to tons of weapons leaking into the Sahel region— Uh, reaching the hands of religious zealots, which then gives France an excuse to intervene militarily uh, in that part of Africa. In other words, the Europeans, they create problems, and then they use that as a platform for deeper intervention. Uh, Obviously, that is an unsustainable proposition, and it's particularly unsustainable if I'm allowed to return once again to the global context – you might have heard about the speech given today by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken of focusing on China. And although it won't be reported as such in the corporate media and the mainstream press, in a de facto sense, the speech is an acknowledgement that 50 years of relations with the People's Republic of China, which was designed to turn it into a counter-revolutionary force, into a source for cheap labor and neoliberalism, has basically come to a screeching halt in light of the conflict in Central Europe, where Beijing has dis- disappointed its Washington interlocutors by not joining the sanctions brigade against Russia. But once again, uh, this highlights the importance of Africa, Because the African nations are on side with China with regard to uh, that conflict in Central Europe. Uh, They stand to benefit from the Belt and Road Initiative, the multi 1000000000000 dollar initiative by China to build railways and uh, airports and all all manner of infrastructure on the African continent. So I think if, if I may be allowed to go out on a limb We may be on the cusp of a transformative global change which involves the increasing, diminishing importance and profundity of the North Atlantic countries which have dominated planet Earth for the last four to 500 years and the rise of China in particular and like a V-shaped brigade of geese. You will see China at the point flanked by African and Latin American nations and European nations who are wise enough to sense what is in store.
2: I agree. And I do think you have to put India somewhere near the front of that pack, too, because I think they sense I've always I felt like this since this happened, that what India really sensed was that they aspire to be a rising power such as Russia. And I mean, they're a major power, don't get me wrong, but they don't have the same gravitas, shall we say, as Russia and China amongst the aspiring nations and that they haven't attracted the same attention from the the hegemon. However, or the want to be hegemon, but whatever the case may be, but that India recognizes that if they were to be perceived by the U.S. As a, as a rising power in the same way that Russia and China is, that they would receive, the crosshairs would be on them the same. I've always I've felt like that's why India, that's one of the main reasons why India is, is reticent to join the U.S. empire in their pursuit to take down Russia. Your thoughts?
6: Well, I think India is also wary because it recognizes that U.S. imperialism would like to fight China to the last Indian. And uh, that leads to this wariness in New Delhi, despite the obvious conflicts between Delhi and Beijing, uh, stretching back to the de facto war they had in October 1962 in the shadow of the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis. And In the last year or two, rather sharp conflicts on the Himalayan border that separates these two giants. But I think another signal of of what is to come was noted earlier this week when, as Mr. Biden was meeting with the so-called Quad, this anti-China alliance that includes India, Australia, Japan, and the United States, That there was a joint military exercise of Russia and China in the same neighborhood, as if they were seeking to send a signal. And, of course, they said that they had planned that well in advance. uh, But I'm not so sure about that.
0: (laughs) Well, elaborate on that just a little bit, so that because we uh, we've we've talked about it in the first hour with uh, Dr. Ken Hammond, that I don't think it was an accident that the day that Biden is concluding his, his trip to Asia, that Russian and Chinese jets uh, delivered a a real nice send-off uh, to Biden as he was leaving the region.
5: Well, uh,
6: let me introduce a, a parallel point. Uh, um, Josh Rogan, who is the hawkish anti-China correspondent for the Washington Post, has his book out, Chaos Under Heaven. And what comes out clearly is that the U.S. ruling elite is factionalized when it comes to China. You have a certain wing of the U.S. ruling elite, I think, in the first instance of Steve Wynn, the casino magnate whose interest in Macau, under the People's Republic of China administration, earns more than his Las Vegas casinos, and even Henry Kissinger, who's made a major fortune. Uh, since brokering the entente with uh, China 50 years ago. Now, at the same time, there are these hawks uh, who are hotly opposed to those like Kissinger and Men. but you don't have to be an oracle to recognize that oftentimes in these conflicts, the men with the money, uh, what Rogan refers to as Trump's billionaire buddies, usually prevail. And it's going to be diff- difficult for the United States going forward to mount a coherent strategy against these Copernican changes that we're talking about this morning when their own ruling class is so fractionalized and so divided.
0: You mentioned Kissinger. I was shocked to hear Kissinger at Davos say, Y'all better solve this thing with the Ukraine because Russia ain't playing. You're going to have to give up some land and you need to settle this in the next couple of months. Or basically you're going to have a fight on your hands and likes of which you won't be able to to win. Uh, I was shocked to hear Kissinger say that and say it at Davos. Am I making more of his comments than I should? None at
6: all. And contrast what Mr. Kissinger said with uh, the fellow uh, titan of the U.S. ruling class, uh, who's also 90-plus years old, speaking of George Soros. Uh, uh, Mr. Soros, who, as you know, is a kind of big of the right wing, was actually more to the right of Kissinger, uh, at urging Washington to fight on, uh, fight on uh, in a de facto sense to the last Ukrainian. But once again, this illustrates the factionalism at the uh, apex of the U.S. ruling class. And it's difficult for any class to move forward with coherence when they're so busily sniping at each other and shooting each other in the back.
2: And the, so it seems to me that there is seen we're hearing from Italy and Hungary saying that they want, you know, that that they want to put together a peace deal. Um, Olaf Scholz is reported to have said, some of his advisors that he's not going to be the next, what is it, uh, Kaiser. Does it seem that the cracks are growing, the fissures are growing in Europe?
6: Well, they certainly are. And to uh, circle back to our starting point, uh, this opens up enormous opportunities for African nations to play upon the contradictions, between and amongst the North Atlantic ruling class, which is one of the reasons why I would like to reiterate that interview with a Malian foreign minister who, by the way, gave the interview in Moscow of all places.
0: Wow. So at the end of the day, you've got Kissinger making his statements. Are his comments falling on deaf ears? Or or, or do you think that that he's speaking to those in control of policy that are going to bring a resolution to this thing as quickly as possible?
6: It, it, it's hard to say, because as you know, these votes in Congress have basically featured a unanimity on the part of the Democratic Party caucus, increasing reservations on the part of certain Republicans, uh, which is uh, unfortunate for social progress because it allows the right wing to pose as the promoters of peace, which is ironic indeed and does not bode well going into this November midterm elections.
0: Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.